Ready? Born ready. Party people, you are tuning in to Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I am your host, Sabalong. Y'all, so much has happened since last week's podcast. So much. So let's get right into it. First up, I'd said last week that COVID was over. I was kind of joking, but the CDC said, nah, for real, it is over. <laughs> They made a huge shift on mask wearing. Uh, They basically have switched to personal responsibility, which is actually something Republicans and Libertarians have been uh, fussing about the whole time uh, of COVID. Wear a mask if you feel like you need to wear one. So the CDC has identified three levels of risk, uh, and they're encouraging indoor mask mask use based on those levels. So it's kind of like when you're at the beach and there's those different flags that tell you, you know, if it's safe to get into the water or not. That's kind of what the CDC did here with mask wearing. So the low level is wear it if you want to wear it. A medium level risk is wear it if you are immunocompromised. And then a high level is wear it regardless of your vaccination status or your health risk. Now there's a tracker on the CDC website that lets you know the risk level per county, like in your actual county. So here in Georgia, we have a mix of low, medium, and high level counties. Of course, uh, Metro Atlanta is all low right now. Um, Curious to see what happens as we uh, folks stop wearing masks and seeing what what happens to the risk level then. Um, Cities, you know, states, school districts, businesses, across the board, both in Atlanta and beyond, are all eliminating the mask mandates. So does this mean work from home is dead? You got to go back into the office now? Well, at least for Atlanta's elected officials, yes. Atlanta City Council will start back meeting in person March 7th for the first time in more than two years, which is so wild to think about. City Hall has been closed to the public for so long. Uh, Mayor Andre Dickens announced that in-person meetings were also going to resume for the Atlanta Beltline, Atlanta Housing, and some of those other city departments. Um, You know, one thing I do want to mention is COVID deaths are still happening. People are still dying from COVID. And in fact, we're at just under 2,000 people per day in the United States dying from COVID, which is basically the same number we were, we were at last year, which is kind of fascinating. It's like we've just gotten to a point where we're okay with it. I don't know, like what's the right thing? We're, we're, is, is just a matter of fact and we're moving on. Um, so if you were immunocompromised, obviously please continue to follow the guidelines, uh, pay attention to what is out there and what you do, what you're comfortable uh, doing. Uh, you do you, boo. Do you, boo boo. Do you, boo boo. You know why? Because I'm a do me. So, uh, why is the CDC doing this now that since the death rate, as I mentioned, is still so high? 
uh, a lot of signs seem to point to political pressure. Uh, Democrats have been getting eaten alive over mask mandates. Uh, parents are going crazy over mask mandates and are tired of their kids being masked. You know, I had lunch a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine whose kid is five years old. And like, and the, you know, he mentioned like, since we put our child in school, the only thing she has known is wearing a mask, which is just kind of fascinating to think about that. And what is that psychologically going to be for that child? A lot of kids just wear masks all the time. If you see kids in public, they just wear it. Yeah. Until their parents take it off. Right. Yeah. yeah I noticed I was at the zoo uh, a few weeks ago with some friends and yeah, the kids there, we were outside. I'm like, why are we outside wearing a mask at the zoo? Um, but anyway, um, sometimes I feel like I'm turning into a Republican over the whole mask stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's become a cultural debate instead of a scientific debate. Um, and in the process of all of this, from the very beginning of COVID, um, unfortunately, so many people have lost trust in the CDC. Uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, that's a name we, some folks might know in Atlanta, he leads the Infectious Disease Division at Emory um, and at Grady, actually, I think not Emory, but he does work for Emory as well. So he retweeted or reposted this op-ed that calls for the CDC to be completely independent from the federal government. In this op-ed, they also list a bunch of other recommendations that the CDC can do to restore trust. And the trust, like I said, is really fractured. Um, I hope the White House is paying attention to it. I hope Congress is paying attention to it and thinking through when the next pandemic happens, because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, how do you make sure that you have brought the country back into paying attention to and believing what the CDC actually says? And it's not just based on if there is a D in office or an R in office. Um, so that's that. Over the weekend, a lot happened politically. Uh, there were two conservative conferences that happened in Orlando that caused quite a stir. Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is a white supremacist event. Yes, you heard me say that. Uh, it's called the American First Political Action Conference. The person who runs this is a known white supremacist. I'm not going to say his name because I just don't feel like giving him any additional uh, attention in that way. Um, so this is the third year that they have put this conference on. Uh, the guy, I guess, like I said, who runs this on his social media, he spews anti-black, anti-gay, anti-Jewish, and anti-women hate speech. Um, now, hearing all of that, there was one black guy who was a speaker at this conference. His name was Clayton Biz Bigsby. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't really Clayton Bigsby, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, why is there, there's always like one black person who participates in these kinds of things. It's just fascinating. Self-hate is a real thing. Um, but guess who the mystery keynote speaker was at this conference? None other than Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> yep. So, uh, which is again, kind of strange because these folks are kind of anti-women, but they have Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, speak. 
technically, she was not their first pick. Uh, they were trying to get the guy who was formerly the head of ICE under Trump, uh, but he had a family emergency. Like, apparently, literally, he was there at the conference and something happened and he had to jet out and handle a family matter. Um, so just before Marjorie Taylor Greene takes the stage, the guy putting on the conference had this to say. Take a listen. And you want to know the secret, uh, to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine, our secret sauce here, it's these young white men. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we call the secret ingredient. America and the world has forgotten about them, but not us. You know, they say about America, they say, diversity is our strength, you know? And I look at China, and I look at Russia, who, can we give a round of applause for Russia? <laughs> yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he just, they were chanting Putin. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so, Marjorie Taylor Greene starts her speech by calling, I mean, it almost sounded like she was speaking to a group um, at a church. You know, she says, I'm a forgiven sinner, and I'm a child of God. And then the crowd goes on to chant, Christ is king. Um, again, this is all in the name of white supremacy, which is fascinating. Uh, she called Democrats the Communist Party of the United States, she railed against vaccine mandates and the mask mandates. Uh, obviously, none of this is new. This is what she has done time and time again. Um, but what made this particular speech and her appearance so um, controversial is that uh, the, who she was addressing, right? She is a sitting congresswoman um, speaking to a group that identifies as white supremacists, as white nationalists, anti-gay, anti-black, anti-Jew. Generally, that's not something you do if you are a U.S. congressperson. That's not even something you do if you were a local elected official. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's remarkable. So she said she didn't know who was behind the conference. They just asked her to speak. You know, she kind of feigned ignorance. Um, but again, you heard the clip that we just played that tells you what he said just before she came on the stage. So she clearly knew uh, what it was. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene has already been stripped of her committee assignments uh, by Republicans, mind you. Uh, Georgia Republican leadership has made her House district even harder for her to win by removing some Republican areas and adding in more Democratic areas. Um, technically, her seat will still be a safe Republican seat, but there could be enough political maneuvering to happen that could cause her to lose the Republican primary or to even lose to a third-party candidate. Now, the Republican National Committee did not denounce uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene per se, but they did come out and say that they were against anti-Semitism. You know, it's, it's one of those things that the Republic, I guess it seems like the Republican Party just doesn't know what to do with her. Marjorie Taylor Greene has received tons of money and campaign donations, um, despite all the things that she has said, and maybe even b 
because of all the things that she has said. Uh, so the other big Republican event uh, that occurred also in Orlando, just down the street from this uh, white supremacist thing, was CPAC, which is a huge annual Republican conference. Um, it does not represent the right wing per se, but it is certainly much more conservative. Um, their theme for uh, this this year's conference, awake, not woke. Uh, there were <laughs> there were a lot of speakers. Um, now, these names won't surprise you just kind of given the theme that I just said, right? So Trump Jr., uh, Representative Lauren Boebert, she's kind of like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but she's in Colorado. Candace Owens, you might know her as Blexit, the chick who is pushing for black folks to stay away from the Rep Democratic Party and move over to the Republican Party. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Dr. Ben Carson, and then a bunch <coughs> of other folks who worked in the Trump White House. Marjorie Taylor Greene was also a speaker at CPAC, as was uh, David Perdue, who's running for governor of Georgia, um, and, and um, a couple of other Georgia, Georgia candidates. Um, so Georgia was certainly well represented. Now, one of the speakers at this conference was a 2020 Democratic candidate for president of the United States. Who might that be? Of course, if you guessed Tulsi Gabbard, you win the prize. Um, and it wasn't even like a quick hello, goodbye. Like They gave Tulsi 25 minutes, uh, which is a significant amount of time. And she focused her speech on um, civil liberties and the need for free speech. Um, she technically got more time than Ron DeSantis, who folks you know, all signs point to him running for a camp for president in 2024. I'll get to that in a second. Um, so CPAC was also a reminder to Republicans and what we have talked about in the last few episodes that the 2022 midterm is all about education. So I want you to hear a clip from Rona McDaniel. She is the head of the Republican National Committee. Is. So I actually gave a speech in the summer before the Yunkin race saying uh, uh, America has a sleeping giant that's been awoken in its moms because I am one of those moms. And yeah. I have a son that just finally this week got to stop wearing a mask. Tell me how a child can learn when they can't see a teacher speaking, uh, talking about concepts like Algebra 2 or Calculus. Tell me how that's good for our kids. And then to have the Biden administration to have the audacity to call us domestic terrorists for saying, well, our kids should be able to think for themselves, make choices for themselves, not have the government force vaccines on them, not have the government force masks on them, and not have gr a biological um, males compete with our young women in sports. These are the things that moms are standing for. Yeah. So wake up, Democrats. We're involved in our kids' education, and on top of that, we were the ones setting up the Zoom classes, and we were the ones dealing with the mental health issues and watching our kids suffer under Democrat rule. I'm from the China People's Republic of Michigan under Gretchen <laughs> Whitmer, but that has, has energized a whole party. But I will say this. We have to keep the energy going. Yeah, yeah. They will do it again. Yep. They want to do it again. They have not learned their lesson. So All right. Um, I think that is actually an effective, a quite effective um, campaign strategy, I will say. Not saying I agree with it, but I do think it's an effective strategy. 
Um, so by the way, the folks who went to CPAC, they were greeted with billboards in Orlando uh, by the Republican Accountability Project. I think I've talked about this group before on the podcast as well. They are anti-Trump Republicans. Now, the billboard featured conservative voters who are anti-Trump. One of them was a guy from Georgia named Frank, and the billboard uh, with his photo read this, I was a lifelong Republican, now I'm out. So, you know, CPAC is for hardcore Republicans, so does the billboard really sway anyone? No, but I get why they put it up, right? I mean, they're they're wanting to show that the Republican Party is not a monolith and that there are dissenting voices to what's happening in the party. Um, so at CPAC, they always conduct a straw poll uh, to see who folks want to be the pre next presidential candidate. Um, spoiler, well, I, this isn't even really a spoiler. I think everyone would probably assume that this would happen. Trump won handedly. Uh, there were about a dozen candidates. Trump got 70% of the vote in the straw poll. Ron DeSantis got 21%. Now, if you, when they removed Trump's name and kept everyone else, it was flipped. Ron DeSantis got 68% of folks favoring him. Um, and by the way, if you're not familiar with the term a straw poll, it's just an unscientific, informal poll. Uh, mostly done at events, right? So you think about like an online poll, check one or two. That's an example of a straw poll. But um, for Trump to have gotten 70% and DeSantis to have gotten 68 without Trump, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens for that 2024 election. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm doing the sound effects uh, on my own here. All right, next, uh, next thing to talk about. Now, if you're listening to this podcast when it first comes out, it's Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, uh, Tuesday is the day of the State of the Union address. Um, so if you're not familiar, the State of the Union is the annual speech that the president gives to Congress. It's actually required in the Constitution. It used to just be a written report, uh, but President Woodrow Wilson change that and set the precedent for an actual speech. Now, the president's cabinet, the Supreme Court, the Joint Chiefs, they all attend this. This is a big deal. Uh, now, you might remember from the movies or from class that there's always a designated survivor. So there's one person from the cabinet who is required to stay behind in the event that something goes down uh, and, you know, God forbid, everyone is uh, eliminated, shall we say. Um, and that person would become president of the United States. So anyway, uh, what can we expect Biden to talk about at his State of the Union address? Um, let's look at the data on what folks are worried about in the country. So Pew Research just released some data that says the top three issues on Americans' minds right now, number one, now granted, I don't know, we, this does not include what's happening in Russia, uh, but this is really just kind of focused on what's happening in America right now. Number one, strengthening the economy, 71% of folks are, um, you know, that's a big concern of theirs. Two, healthcare cost, and then third, dealing with COVID. Not a surprise at all. The bottom three issues, and again, this is kind of interesting given what's happening over the past week, strengthening the military, uh, dealing with global trade and dealing with drug addiction, which 
by the way, drug addiction and drug overdose has really gone all the way through the roof during COVID. Um, so those were all uh, the bottom three issues just ahead of that um, was the military, which is kind of interesting. So I know a lot of people are, you know, I always try to talk about why young folks need to vote and engage in the political process. Um, climate change is one of the one of the topics, right? One of the things of the issues. So uh, if you do a, an age breakdown, adults under 30 are the only age group that was surveyed in which a majority of them said climate change should be a top priority, right? 54% said that. Now, when you pull that same, uh, that same group of people, but again, they do the breakdown by age, for those who are 65 or older, only 39% said climate change should be a top priority, which is kind of interesting here. Um, so uh, here's the part that I think Biden should be paying attention to. Americans are getting firmer, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, are getting more and more entrenched in their partisanship, right? So when folks were surveyed by Pew in 2021, 62% of those surveyed who either identified as a Dem or lean Democrat said Biden should work with the GOP to accomplish things, even if it disappointed Democrats. Today, that survey, that number dropped to just 50%. So only 50% said Biden should work with the opposition party. Now, the reverse of that question was asked to Republicans, or so those who either identified as Republican or lean Republican. So last year, 59% of those polled said the Republican Party should stand up to Biden on issues important to the GOP, even if it made it harder to address other issues and like critical problems, right? That was only 59% last year. This year, 72% said, do not work with Biden on issues, even if there are critical problems. Just kind of fascinating. So, and I bring that up because Biden has repeatedly seen himself and campaign as someone to bring the country together, someone who was going to focus on bipartisan, uh, working with, going across the aisle, working with the Republicans in a bipartisan fashion. But the reality is the party is not interested in that and neither are, it seems that Republican voters are interested in that. Now, Biden's not the only person who's going to be giving a speech. Now, there's always a response from the opposition party. This year, it will be Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Um, she's going to talk about exactly what you would think. Mask mandates, COVID lockdown, critical race theory, etc. Um, it's part of an effort to push back on Democrats who are finally have come on board about loosening COVID restrictions, and they're saying that We've, you know, so to speak, won the war on COVID and Republicans are pushing back on that notion. Now, I'm sure her speech is going to go well. I'm sure she'll do fine. But the speech to really pay attention to, I think, uh, beyond Biden's is a second speech from Democrats, which is this is the second time this has happened. <laughs> the Working Families Party, which is a very progressive left leaning group, um, are tapping Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib to deliver not quite a rebuttal, but uh, maybe just a response to Biden's speech. And 
Rashida Tlaib kind of gave a preview of it. Um, here's what she said, and I quote, no one fought, fought harder for Build Back Better and a pro-democracy agenda than progressives. The work is unfinished, and we're not giving up on what our communities deserve. We need to get as much done for the people as we can this year and elect, and elect a majority that can deliver for working families in 2023. So uh, it's expected that Rashida Tlaib is going to call out her fellow Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who, um, if you've listened to the pod regularly, we've talked a lot about how they are seen as um, almost like an internal opposition to a progressive agenda uh, for Democrats. Uh, the other big thing she's going to do, she's going to ask Biden to use his executive authority to cancel student loan debt and change also to change the way that poverty is calculated uh, in order to expand um, uh, benefits to more Americans. Uh, so I don't know if Biden will do that. That'll be interesting to see. So, you know, progressives like AOC, like Rashida Tlaib, they really see folks like Manchin and Cinema as saboteurs, right? They will do everything possible to slow walk or even just flat out stop progressive policies from passing. Um, so if you want to see that speech, you can go to the Working Families Party, Facebook or Meta, whatever we're calling it these days. Go to their uh, page and you can watch it there. Um, and then obviously, Biden will, I'm sure, talk about his new Supreme Court pick, Kentaji Brown Jackson. Here are her stats, if you're not familiar. She's 51. Uh, she's got a double Harvard degree. She went to Harvard for undergrad and law school. Both of her parents graduated from HBCUs. Uh, she's married with two kids. As she actually met her husband at Harvard. She's currently a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Um, and that was a vote that had to be voted on by the Senate, and that passed. And so there's some thought here that since she was able to get on the circuit, D.C. Circuit, she'll also be uh, approved for Senate. Um, one thing that Biden seemed to really appreciate about her, uh, beyond obviously her being the first black uh, female, um, is that she clerked for Justice, Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, who is the person that she will be replacing. Um, and by the way, she was also previously vetted by the Obama administration uh, when he replaced Justice Scalia. So I think it's probably safe to say that no one's worried about skeletons in her closet or something coming out or how much she loves beer because she's already been vetted. Um, so uh, take a listen to her kind of thanking Biden for her nomination and just generally kind of talking about what this means for her and her family. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination, and I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. I also offer my sincere thanks to you as well, Madam Vice President, for your invaluable role in this nomination process. I must begin these very brief remarks by thanking God for delivering me to this point in my professional journey. My life has been blessed beyond measure, and I do know 
that one can only come this far by faith. Among my many blessings, and indeed the very first, is the fact that I was born in this great country. The United States of America is the greatest beacon of hope and democracy the world has ever known. I was also blessed from my early days to have had a supportive and loving family. As it happens, I share a birthday with the first black woman ever to be appointed as a federal judge, the Honorable Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years to the day apart. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders, sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Judge Motley's life and career has been a true inspiration to me as I have pursued this professional path. And if I am fortunate enough to be confirmed as the next Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. Thank you again, Mr. President, for this extraordinary honor. All right, so Biden has personally called uh, a few of those key moderate senators on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrats, to stress that he wants Kintaji confirmed and confirmed fast. Uh, as I mentioned, she's already been vetted and voted on by the Senate before, so she's no stranger to these folks. Um, you know, the challenge for Biden and for Kintaji will be the more moderate senators um, voting no just because they see her as an affirmative action pick and not as someone who's actually qualified. Uh, but I, I, I suspect that at the end of the day, folks will see her credentials uh, and vote accordingly. And then obviously, you will have a number of Republicans that vote no just because that's just what both parties do, right? When Whenever the other party brings up a Supreme Court pick, it's not like the old days where they would say, oh, yes, this person's qualified. I'm going to vote for them. And in other kind of interesting legal news, I'm just going to make this part real quick. There are two, two recall efforts in California to get rid of the district attorneys in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Now, both of them are being called out for being soft on crime. Uh, both of them have removed cash bail for certain offenses and there have been a few high-profile cases where they've been perceived as being too lenient on the person who committed the crime. Uh, those recall efforts will take place in June, so I'll, I'll update you as we get closer to that election. Uh, now, if you might recall, I think one or two episodes ago, I talked about California recall of some of the San Francisco school board seats. Uh, so it's just, I don't know, it's a whole lot of interesting political things happening in California. All right, so our last big topic for today, yes, of course, it is Ukraine. Um, now, if you are saying to yourself, Saba, why should I care about a country I'm never going to go visit or I haven't even really heard of? Well, you should. I'll, I'll talk to you about that. 
Um, but first, let me give you a high-level overview. I'm not an Eastern European expert. Uh, there are people who literally spend their entire career uh, becoming an expert in one particular region or one particular country, um, and that's an important thing to do. That is not what I have done. Uh, but I'll give you a quick overview of kind of what's going on. Um, and just, by the way, I'll caveat this by saying I am a political partner of the Truman National Security Project, uh, which is a national organization that trains local and state politicos on issues of national security. We actually have a pretty strong chapter in Atlanta and Georgia, uh, in part because there's a big military presence, obviously, here with the bases. Um, and we have a ton of assets of international importance that people may not really think about think about in kind of a national security standpoint, right? We've got a major airport, we have transit infrastructure, we have the Port of Savannah, which is billions and billions of dollars uh, coming through that, military bases, all of that. So if you live in a major American city, one reason to pay attention to stuff like Ukraine is because if it really hits the fan, it could end up happening uh, in your city. Um, so let me give you a bit of a sense of where Ukraine is in Europe. Uh, it's the second largest country in Europe outside of Russia. Uh, it has the sixth largest population, and it shares borders with six other European countries, plus it's uh, connected to uh, the Black Sea, which connects Asia and Europe. Now, I was watching Bill Maher the other day, and you all know I'm always trying to like bring issues into a context that helps people understand it, and Bill Maher um, compared Russia to Kanye and Ukraine to Kim Kardashian. And I was like, well, I'm just going to steal that from, from you, Bill. Um, so Russia just won't leave the Ukraine alone, uh, right? And it's been like this for years and years now. Um, you guys might remember vaguely Crimea, uh, which was annexed uh, by Russia in 2014. And then obviously uh, what happened in the country of Georgia, I think that was back in 2008, 2009. So... Ukraine wants to join NATO, uh, which would grant it further protection from Russia's badgering. It would also make it a formal U.S. ally. Now, that would mean that if, if Ukraine was a NATO ally today, or it was in NATO today, and Russia and entered Ukraine, we would also be at war because the United States is part of NATO. Okay, so February 24th. Uh, Russia invades Ukraine. It's the most significant security crisis in Europe since the Cold War. It surprised a lot of people. What's interesting about this also is Biden's intelligence team and uh, the Department of um, the Secretary of State's office, rather, repeatedly told the press that this was happening and that their intelligence was telling them this was happening. And a lot of folks just did not believe the Biden administration on it, just kind of Interesting that, you know, now that it did happen and folks are like, oh, okay, you guys were actually right. Um, so uh, there are already, just, just to give this a little bit of context locally, there are already about 4,000 soldiers um, that are based at Fort Stewart near Savannah who are being deployed to Europe right now because of this. Their first stop is Germany, and I think depending on what Russian uh, Vladimir Putin does. They could go to other NATO countries closer to Ukraine, perhaps a country like Poland. Um, now, these Georgia-based soldiers only make up one quarter 
of the total number of U.S. troops that have been deployed so far. The United States has deployed 12,000 troops. And remember, we already have 80,000 soldiers in, already serving in Europe, primarily in Germany. Uh, so one reason to care about what's happening in Ukraine, because this is a very fluid situation, Americans are already engaged in it uh, from a military military standpoint. Um, I think, you know, if, if you know someone who's serving in the military, uh, either in reserves or whatnot, there, there's a chance that they could be called up uh, to engage in this issue in some form or fashion. So this is all very fluid. I'm taping this Monday. You're going to hear this Tuesday. Who knows what will happen between now and then. Um, but... Let me just kind of tell you what's happening so far. Um, so, so far, obviously, Russia has attacked Ukraine from all angles. They're trying to take over Kiev, which is the capital city. Now, the report is that Putin expected a quick win. Like, we're going to go in, and, and within a day or two, we've basically taken over the capital city. That did not happen. Ukraine has put up a hell of a fight. Um, the Prime Minister Zelensky has become this kind of world hero, so not even a hero just in Ukraine. He's really being perceived as this world hero, as has the mayor of Kiev, um, who is literally on the battlefield protecting his city, uh, which, as an aside, I just, you know, if you think about, God forbid, but something happening in America and, like, the mayor of a major American city protecting their city – I don't know if I see that happen. Maybe. I don't know. It's just kind of fascinating to think about. Like, what would that happen? I don't know. So so the question is, can Putin be stopped, right? This is what everyone is asking themselves. Can you stop Putin? How do you stop Putin? Now, one way the West thinks to do that is by sanctions. Now, sanctions, you know, basically saying, let's make this a war about money, not a war about weapons, uh, now, the West has implemented a ton of sanctions, and each day, uh, as this crisis goes on, they've been leveling up the pressure on Putin. So they've done everything from freezing bank accounts of certain Russians, banning exports to Russia's military. Uh, some countries have cut off all trade to Russia, uh, imposing travel bans to block Russians from uh, leaving and coming into their countries. The United States has blocked exports on Russian technology, cutting off uh, Russian-owned companies from raising money in the United States. These are all just some of the things that they have done. Um, and the point of this is to hit them in their pockets, right, where it hurts. Uh, now, if you think about it, if the wealthiest 100 people in Russia suddenly can't access their bank accounts, uh, particularly their offshore accounts, the idea is that puts some pressure on Putin because they're, they're going to Putin saying, yo, what the heck, we can't access our money. Uh, and by the way, this also includes freezing Putin's assets. And Putin is rumored to be the richest man in the world. Yes, richer than Elon Musk. Um, which is really fascinating. The other thing the West is doing is um, I, I would maybe kind of liken this to kind of hurting Russia's pride uh, in the sense of um, the European version of the Super Bowl. Uh, that is being moved from Russia to France. 
There was a Formula One Grand Grand Prix that was supposed to be in Russia. That's being moved as well. FIFA soccer is supposed to is kicking Russia out of qualifying for the World Cup. So this is hurting Russia again in many levels. So you've got sports, you've got business, you've I mean it's just across the board. And to put some of that in context, where if you might remember last year when the Major League Baseball All-Star game was supposed to be in Cobb County at Truist Park, right? But they pulled it out uh, and moved it to Colorado because they were protesting Republican action on that Senate Bill 202, the voting rights bill. So that move, Cobb County losing the MLB All-Star game, according to Cobb County, that costs them $100 million. So imagine what all of this is going to cost the Russian economy if you think about, you know, super the European version of the Super Bowl, getting kicked out of the World Cup, uh, losing the Formula One Grand Prix, all these sanctions, Russian businessmen not being able to raise money for their companies. It's a tremendous impact across the board. Now, while, yes, what's happening uh, between Russia and Ukraine is quite fascinating, the thing to really be looking out for is China. And how does China respond and react to what's happening? Uh, China and Russia share a border Uh, China and Russia also share a disdain for democracy and the Western approach to governing. Um, And and it's just really interesting to see what's going to happen here. To what extent does China align itself with Russia? Uh, By the way, take a listen to this clip from a BBC documentary on Putin. I think this was done in like 2016 or 2018. The first person you're going to hear is Garry Kasparov, who is a famous chess player who attempted to run against Putin, uh, but Putin shut his campaign down. Uh, the other is a British former foreign secretary, William Haig. Take a listen to this. Our strategic goals. He wants chaos because that's the that's the he's breathing uh, 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 air. He needs chaos because that's how he. Uh, uh, install his authorities inside and outside of Russia. He doesn't uh, want to compete. He cannot compete with the free world. But the moment it, it comes into wars and conflicts, he's dominant because he's very quick in making decisions. He doesn't bother about parliament, free press, uh, public opinion. So he immediately grabs an opportunity if, if, uh, op- if it's presented. He looks at the world map looking for bargaining chips, because for him it's all geopolitical casino. I think this is part of a pattern where there has quite probably been Russian interference in elections and referendums throughout Europe over the last few years. Not always to achieve a specific result, but to diminish confidence in the democratic process uh, over time and to weaken the unity of the West. And it's not over. So um, that's what, that was an interesting piece. Now, I <coughs> imagine some people might call that a bit of propaganda because it's anti-Putin, uh, but it is, I think it's something worth listening to, worth watching. So the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, he has agreed to hold talks with Russia. I think those have actually started. 
Um, and at the same time, Russia has ordered its military to put its nuclear forces on high alert. Um, and, you know, ultimately, this is a war, right? Russian soldiers have died. We don't know exactly how many. They're doing a quite a remarkable job of keeping that as quiet as possible. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers have died. Civilians have died. Uh, the more that this goes on, the more people are going to die. Uh, another thing I want to point out that is just not quite penetrating the mainstream media is that there are a number of Africans in Ukraine who are trying to get out. Uh, these are folks who might have been there for work or education or things of that sort um, and who are struggling to get out of the country. So the big question is what's going to happen, right? We don't know. Um, you know, ex one expert uh, point of view is to say the path that makes the most sense is to, con you know, to contain Putin and avoid a protracted war like what the U.S. had in Afghanistan uh, is to make Ukraine a neutral country. And so that means keep Ukraine out of NATO um, and keep Ukraine out of Russia, right? So that they basically, Ukraine is almost like this little island in between uh, Russia and other NATO countries. Um, will that happen and will Ukraine ultimately say yes to that is the big question because Ukraine has been pushing and pushing to join the European Union and pushing to join NATO. Whoa, okay. That's just a very brief overview of the Ukraine-Russia situation. Um, you know, obviously be mindful of what you read and hear and retweet and repost because one of the things that is advantageous in war is misinformation. And so what you don't want to do is be repeating something that is completely false. All right. So the last bit of the show, uh, how we always end things, our party starters and our party poopers. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right. Party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. Uh, we will start off with the party poopers. This is not a surprise to you, but my party pooper is going to be folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who speaks to folks who are so consumed with hate and fear. Uh, what's worse about all this is they do this in the name of Christianity. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like, gosh, did we not learn our lessons from decades and years and centuries ago? Uh, what insanity. What's rule number one? Party. No, not party. No, it's not party. Uh, so I'm also going to add on to this, my list of party poopers, these right wingers and other conservatives who were enamored by autocratic uh, leaders like Vladimir Putin. Uh, you know, we live in a democracy. And if you are call yourself a patriot and pro-American, the last thing that you should be doing is, you know, saying, oh, praise to Putin. That's just kind of remarkable. Um, Let's get it started in All right, so our party starter, uh, the polar opposite of our poopers, it's going to be um, 
Republicans and others who are doing everything in their power to stop the crazies from taking over, to stop folks um, who are really, you know, doing everything they can to, um, I'm going to almost want to say destroy America, right? Or destroy the tenets of America. Um, this should be what's happening in Ukraine should be a reminder to all of us, uh, that we just don't realize how good we have it here. You know, um, you and I woke up this morning, we were, we had electricity. Uh, we probably had money in our bank accounts to pay our bills, Uh, We were able to use our credit cards to pay those bills. Uh, You've got folks in Ukraine and in Russia where there's a run on the banks and they're not able to access their funds or because the war is going on, they can't work. Um, And so at the end of the day, um, we just have to be reminded that tomorrow is not promised to anyone uh, and it takes work. It takes trust. It takes doing your part to uplift your community. And that is today's show. Thank you for listening. Adios.